Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, in case you have a pew Bible, or if you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that uh, on page 9. As we continue to look at the life of Abraham within the larger story of this first book of the Bible, we're going to see this morning how the plot continues to develop as Abram's nephew Lot makes a fateful choice and the Lord reaffirms his commitment to give the promised land to Abram and his descendants. And so we are in Genesis chapter 13 and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 2. It says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so last week we read about Abram going down to Egypt uh, to escape the, the famine that had occurred in Canaan. And he convinced his wife Sarai to pretend to be his sister rather than his wife, uh, because of what he assumed would be murderous jealousy by the Egyptians. But then Sarai ended up being taken into the Pharaoh's harem, and it took the Lord miraculously delivering them to get them out of the situation. And so as we pick up again here in verse 2 of chapter 13, the text sets the scene by telling us that at this point, Abram was not just rich, but very rich. Uh, very rich with livestock, silver, and, and gold. And you may remember back in the first part of chapter 12, we saw that Abram was already a man of, of some means. And then last week, we saw that the one good thing that came out of his boneheaded plan in Egypt was that Pharaoh gave him uh, pretty significant gifts in, in exchange uh, for Sarai, gifts that he was able to keep uh, even when Pharaoh kicked them out of Egypt. So he's a very wealthy man at this point. In fact, there's a, a linguistic connection here between, uh, that links this story with what happened last week, and that the word that we translate as very rich is the same word that, that is, is used to describe the famine in chapter 12 as being severe. It actually means heavy. And so in an equal and opposite way that food was extremely scarce during this famine last week, so now Abram is extremely wealthy as he comes back into the land of Canaan. And so as he makes his way north from Egypt, Abram passes back through the Negev desert until he comes back to the area uh, between Bethel and Ai. And so you may remember from a couple of weeks ago that Abram built an altar to the Lord when he was there the first time. And as he returns to the area now, that altar is still there. And so Abram uses it to worship the Lord again. 
Uh, no doubt God's faithfulness in getting him out of this mess in Egypt prompted a response of, of praise and of thanksgiving for God's goodness and faithfulness to him, and perhaps also a renewed commitment to follow the Lord. Now in verse 5, we're reminded that Abram's nephew Lot is with him, and uh, Lot also has herds and flocks of his own. And in verse 6, a new problem develops and that uh, there, there isn't enough land to support both Abram and Lot. There are too many animals and not enough grass and water. And so what ends up happening is that Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen end up fighting with each other. Right? Abram's shepherds tell Lot's shepherds, you guys need to leave and go somewhere else because we were here first. And Lot's shepherds tell Abram's shepherds, no, you know that we were here yesterday and we called seat back. Right? No, you weren't. Yes, we were. No, you weren't. Yes, we were. And on and on it goes. And actually, I think it was probably a little bit more heated than that. And, and the situation is gradually escalating. And the end of verse 7 notes that at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so it's not just that Abram and Lot have too many possessions to be able to dwell together. You have to keep in mind that they're living in an area that is already inhabited by other people who are also using the land for their own purposes. And the presence of these other people, who we would understand vastly outnumber Abram and Lot, gives a, a significant reason why it's especially dangerous for them to fight with each other. And that's because they would need to depend on each other if either one of them were attacked by these native people. And so something has to give, and we'll see what happens as we pick up again, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so it's obvious that Lot and Abram continuing to live together is not a sustainable plan. And so picking up in verse 8, Abram speaks to Lot. And he says to him, Lot, you are my nephew. I love you. You love me. And it's, it's not good for us to be fighting with each other. And he tells him, there's a ton of land out there. There's, there's more than enough land in the big picture. So let's separate. I will let you take your pick of whatever land you want. And then I'll move in the other direction. And we should note this is a very generous offer on Abram's part because as the head of the family, he would have had the right to make this decision himself. But out of love for Lot, and certainly with faith in God's promise to him, Abram gives Lot the opportunity to choose wherever he wants to go. And so in verse 10, Lot looks around and he sees that the area of the Jordan Valley is well watered everywhere. 
In fact, we see that it compares to the Garden of Eden itself and also to Egypt, which we saw last week had plenty of food, uh, even when there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And so this area is beautiful. It looks prosperous. But you notice that at the end of of the verse, uh, the text notes that this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think that this detail implies that the, the way that the area looks right now is not going to be the way that it looks uh, in due time, in just a little while. Uh, But verse 11 tells us that Lot chooses the Jordan Valley and travels east. Now, in case you haven't been with us throughout the series so far, you should know that Lot's decision to journey east is an ominous note in the story. Uh, In the Bible, east is usually the direction that people move away from the Lord and from his presence. So you'll remember that Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden to the east. And then Cain is driven out to the land that is east, further east, of Eden after he kills Abel. And then after Noah's ark lands, people continue to migrate east to the Tower of Babel. Incidentally, I had hoped to work this in during Advent, uh, but I never got a chance, so I'm going to say it now. Uh, But when Jesus is born, where does Matthew say that the wise men come from? From the east. He's very interesting. He doesn't give a specific location. He gives a direction. And and I think that the point is that as humanity has consistently moved away from God further and further over the centuries, with the wise men at the birth of Christ, we get a picture of the Lord beginning to draw people back to himself, which is what Jesus would go on to do. And so I just want to throw that out there real quick. But for our purposes, the point is that bad things are associated with the east. And so even now we have an idea that this decision is not going to turn out well for Lot. So so Lot separates from Abram. Abram settles in the land of Canaan, right where he is supposed to be, according to God's promise. And Lot moves down into the Jordan Valley and sets up shop right outside the city of Sodom. And you'll notice that verse 13 describes the people of Sodom as being wicked. And it says that they were great sinners against the Lord. Now, we have seen plenty of sinful humanity as we have gone through the story of Genesis so far, but it's worth noting that these people are specifically being highlighted as being exceptionally bad people. So these are not the kind of folks that you want to have as your neighbors. Sodom is not an area where you want to try to raise a family in. And we don't know if Lot realizes this yet or not, but it sets the stage for how the story is going to continue to develop in the weeks to come. But with Lot out of the picture for now, the Lord is going to renew his promise to Abram as we pick up again one last time, beginning in verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So as we pick up again in verse 14, the Lord speaks to Abram and invites him to look around in every direction as far as his eyes can see, 
And he promises that once again, he will give all of this land to his offspring. And again, there are still no descendants anywhere on the radar. And and now the one person that Abram might have been expecting to fill that role, Lot, is out of the picture. Uh, Of course, that's not to say that Lot is being completely rejected by God, because we'll see uh, soon that that's not the case. But it is to say that the people who are going to inherit the land and through whom God is going to be at work in the world are the actual descendants of Abram. And Lot uh, is not one of those. He's a nephew. But the Lord insists that not only will there be descendants, but Abram's offspring will be so numerous that counting them would be like trying to count all the individual particles of dust on the earth. So there's going to be a lot of them. To, to, to put it lightly. And then in verse 17, God calls Abram to travel around and see all of the land, much like uh, a new landowner might go around to inspect a property. And so Abram packs up and moves again. This time, he settles by an area known as the Oaks of Mamre, which is in the village of Hebron. And so if we take a look at our map again, real quick, my, uh, my very professionally edited map, uh, we can recap and see uh, once again, that number one up at the top is the region of Ararat, which is where Noah's Ark landed. And then going down to number two is where people migrated to the Tower of Babel. Number three at the very bottom is Ur, where Abram's clan moved from the Tower of Babel. Then number four is where Terah and Abram moved to, to the area of Haran. And then finally going down to number five is where we picked up back in chapter 12 with the Lord calling Abram to go to the Promised Land. Then number six is what we read about last week, as, as, as Abram goes down to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. And now number seven is where he has arrived as he's gone back into the promised land in the village of Hebron. And then what you see, what I've listed as L there, if you can tell that's an L, uh, to the right of number seven, that is the, the area of the Jordan Valley, which is where Lot uh, has chosen to move, close to where uh, the cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah were. So that's a picture of where things stand at the moment. But as we close out the chapter, don't miss the end of verse 18, where we see that when Abram gets to Hebron, he builds an altar and worships the Lord. And so if you think about it, this is beginning to be a pattern. Everywhere that Abram goes in the land, he builds an altar in order to worship the Lord. And it's almost like he is preparing the land in advance to, to be the place where the Lord is worshipped by all of the offspring that are, the Lord is going to provide Abram with. And so with this act, once again, we see Abram responding to God's word in faith. And so in our passage this morning, Abram and Lot separate from each other, uh, with Lot choosing to settle in the region of the Jordan Valley and the Lord reaffirming his promise to give Abram the the promised land uh, for for all of his descendants. And as we think about the relevance of this chapter for our lives today, I think that like last week, uh, we can think about it on two levels. Uh, So first of all, I do think there's a good point of application for us in the way that Lot makes his decision. Last week we talked about the importance of trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts and not leaning on our own understanding. And what we see here in chapter 13 is similar to that, in that we see that things are not always what they appear to be. Looks can be deceiving. Uh, Things are not always what they seem to be. On the surface, the Jordan Valley seems to be the ideal place to live, even more so than the land of promise. 
But the reality is that it's not. And in fact, it's going to be the last place that anybody wants to be within just a couple of chapters. But Lot makes his decision based on a superficial evaluation. And it takes him away from where he is supposed to be in the promised land. And it's going to prove to have serious consequences in the long run. And friends, in a similar way, this world is full of things and of opportunities that that may look good, that may seem like the, the key to living the good life that people may insist are the path to satisfaction and fulfillment. But the reality is that they will leave you empty and lead to destruction in the long run. In contrast to that, God's commandments and his, his promises don't always appear to be all that glamorous. They're not glitzy. They don't, they don't show up in neon lights. But the reality, again, is that in time we'll find that they are the path to true joy and fulfillment in life. And this, among other reasons, is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we walk by faith and not by sight. The, the, the signs that this world gives us are misleading. And so we have to depend on the word of God to be the compass that we use to point us in the right direction. And if we remember that, then we will save ourselves a lot of heartache in this life. And we will avoid having to learn lessons the hard way that Lot is going to end up having to learn. But then secondly, and beyond that, I think it's worth reflecting on what is happening here in this chapter. We've, we've already established that the first part of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, is detailing the universal effects of sin in the world, and that the second part is showing us the beginning of the history of God's Old Testament people, Israel, through whom he is going to work to redeem the world. And if last week's story of, of Abram's journey to and deliverance from Egypt was understood as a foreshadowing of the Exodus, which itself is a foreshadowing of the greater deliverance that God is going to bring to his people through the Messiah, then I think we should see Abram's coming into the land of promise here in chapter 13 as foreshadowing the nation of Israel possessing the land, which in turn is foreshadowing the new Jerusalem where God's people will dwell with him forever. So let's talk about that for a moment. If you remember, we saw back in chapters 2 and 3 that the Garden of Eden was a type of sanctuary temple for the Lord, where he would live with his people. And ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their sin, the Lord has intended to establish a place where his people can dwell with him in worship and in fellowship. And that's what's going on here. Right? Because eventually Abram's descendants will inhabit this land. And there will be a temple where God makes his presence among his people to dwell. And the idea is that, is that Israel will function as a kingdom of priests that expands its influence across the rest of the world by drawing the other nations to worship the one true God for themselves. As they see how God blesses his people, it's going to make them want to know this God for themselves. But as we know, Israel utterly fails. Rather than drawing the nations to worship the Lord in righteousness, the nations draw Israel into idolatry and unrepentant sin. And so once again, like in the Garden of Eden, the Lord drives his people out of his presence eastward into exile to be ruled over by Assyria and Babylon. And yet, not all hope is lost. The prophets proclaim that a time is coming when the Lord will restore his people to the land. 
from the the burned stump of, of the kings and rulers of Israel, the Lord promises to raise up a branch from David who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. It's Jeremiah 23. But even more than that, the prophets promise that the Lord is ultimately going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and that's Isaiah 65, that not only will the land of Israel know the Lord, but the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's Habakkuk 2.14. And that ultimately all the families of the earth will in fact be blessed through Abram as the Lord has already promised. And in the New Testament, we find that these promises are finally fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, who makes this restoration possible by making atonement for God's people and by defeating the power of Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. So during Advent, we saw in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then later, we saw that all of the Old Testament saints died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And the author says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And so we recognize that even here in chapter 13, on some level, Abram is already looking beyond this physical land to to a spiritual city that God is preparing, which, which we now know will be the new Jerusalem that the Lord establishes on the last day. One of the last scenes in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, gives us the promise of where God is leading us as his new covenant people. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So once again, we have in our passage this morning the precursor to the precursor. Abram's receiving of this promise and dwelling in the land is a microcosm. It's a a miniature representation of what God is ultimately going to do to establish a place where he and his people can dwell together for all eternity when he makes all things new. Church, if we're trusting in Christ, that is our destiny. That is where we are heading. And if we keep our eye on that destination, then we'll be much better prepared to reject all of the superficial alternatives that this world and this life offers us as we seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And so this morning, may we respond to the Lord in faith and follow him as he leads us into that eternal promised land. Let's pray together. Father, much like Abram, 
our experiences in this life don't match up to the promises that you have given us for the future. But Lord, we are so thankful for your promises because we know that you are faithful. We know that you are true. We know that every word that you have spoken will come to pass exactly as you've said it. And so, Father, as we live this life with all kinds of of personal problems and national issues and interpersonal conflicts and difficulties, Lord, so many things that, that cause us to despair, to be discouraged, to be anxious. Lord, we know that no matter what we face in this life, you are leading us to the land of promise. And that, Father, when we get there, we will be with you for all eternity. And that all of the, the, the bad things and the things that make this life so difficult will be long gone. That, Father, we will dwell with you and that you will dwell with us. And it is all because of your graciousness in forgiving our sin through the death of your Son. And so, Father, I pray that we would believe that good news this morning and that we would keep our eye on that promise as we go through this life looking for for that promised land that you are bringing us to. So, Father, I pray that your Spirit would encourage our hearts this morning as we reflect on this passage. Father, as we take time to respond, I pray that you would lead us to respond in line with your word. And so, Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.